This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. Look, we all know from experience, compliance sucks. But what if I told you that there is a better way? Our good friends at Bycheck developed the first ever managed service for SOC 2. Leverage the innovative Bycheck platform and a combined experience of over 30 years from the Bycheck team to complete your SOC 2 examination faster without the headache. The Bycheck team works as an extension of your team to prepare evidence, draft SOC 2 report sections, and provide all the necessary artifacts to your team to then provide to auditors. Reach out to the Bycheck team by dropping down into the show notes and visiting Bycheck.com. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Lee Kemp. We talked about the grit of being world champion. And in this episode, we dive a little bit into what we were talking about in We Are Here, representation, and what it means to be an inspiration to people. This conversation inspired us to take We Are Here and turn into its own show. So be on the lookout for that as it'll be coming out real soon. But with that, let's conclude this incredible conversation with Lee Kemp. When we think about things that are possible, sometimes we don't see it as being possible because we don't see people that look like us doing this thing. And we talk about representation all the time. We had the first black grandmaster in chess, Maurice Ashley, on the podcast. And that was such an incredible discussion about representation because he never looked at it as him really representing the, the black culture until people started to mention it to him. How does representation play into to your role? I, I know the 2021 America's Cup just named an entire team after you, which I think is an incredible honor. But where does representation play uh, in your life? And is there a story behind it? Absolutely. That's a great question. My first representation of someone of color was Lloyd Kieser. And there was people like Bobby Douglas. There was people like James Tannehill. There was people that I saw in the only publication that, that wrestling had at the time. It was Amateur Wrestling News. And of course, I looked at Gatewell because he was the champion. But you're absolutely right. It, it's absolutely essential to see people that look like you. And the year that uh, I won the state tournament in high school, of course, I was at the camp with Gable. But Lloyd Kieser became the first black wrestler to win a world championship in 1973. And that was, you know, the same year I won the state tournament. I had that picture on my wall too. I cut that out. That picture of Lloyd Kieser, he went to the Navy being the first black wrestler. And that made me believe that I could do it too. And so maybe without seeing Lloyd Kieser, it might've been more difficult without seeing Bob. Bobby Douglas was the pioneer before Lloyd Kieser. Bobby Douglas was on two Olympic teams. In fact, he was the last guy to beat Dan Gable. And actually, he had never lost to Dan. He beat Dan by almost 10 points one of the first times he wrestled. And uh, Bobby was uh, made the 64 and 1968 Olympic team and was a bronze medalist, I think. So I knew who Bobby Douglas was. I knew who Lloyd Kieser was. I studied the publications of wrestling, which was only one or two at the time. And I scoured them and when I would find someone of color, yeah, it, it made a difference. And I'll transition that story into the first time I got the idea that I could own a business came from Tom Burrell, who owned 
Foxborough advertising. I'd never seen or known a person, a black person that owned a major business before until I went to work for Tom Burrell in Chicago. And that had a huge impact on me to, to see this brilliant man. He was so articulate. He, in fact, his agency is still one of the largest, if not the largest black owned agency today. They do general market advertising as well as marketing for different minority segments like black and Asian and Hispanic, things like that. But without seeing that, it's just, I don't know if I would have gotten so passionately the idea to own my own business. So I became the owner of a Ford automobile franchise. And at the time I owned the Ford franchise, probably only 200 or so black Ford dealers in the United States out of about a base of maybe 4,000. And the numbers of black people that own dealerships today is still quite small across all the major brands of you know the American car companies as well as the imports. But it's vitally important to, to demonstrate and see the successes. I can throw out another example, the movie Hidden Figures, mm-hmm. about the black women who participated, not only participated, they were integral in their contributions to the space race, just with their knowledge of mathematics and just understanding everything that you have to know about aerophysics or whatever that's called. Why was that kept from the general market mainstream education for so long. I'd never heard of these three women until the movie came out. I'm 64 years old and that happened Mm -hmm. in the sixties. So I think the suppression of black achievements, the intentional suppression of black achievements is wrong. It's wrong and it's evil. And I think that's part of the problem with just the racial tensions today. I think you have a situation that occurs from mentioned Tom Burrell again. He wrote a book called Brainwashed, and I would recommend that as reading for anyone listening to this podcast. He made a career, a black man made a career out of selling advertising. What is advertising? It's brainwashing, actually. It's getting you to believe and want something that maybe you might not have even thought that you wanted before. But he wrote it from the standpoint of race relations in America. Black people have been brainwashed to think they're inferior to white people, and white people have been brainwashed to think they're superior to black people. So through all of our history, both black and white people are brainwashed. And part of that brainwashing comes from suppressing information, like we've just talked about, hidden figures, like the women, the women that were in hidden figures. There are countless numbers of contributions that black people have made, not just in sports, not just in entertainment and music, but in sciences and arts and every endeavor you can think of. Black people have made a contribution. So I think once both sides understand their, the, the value, if black people start understanding their value because they can see the history before them and white people can see the value in black people and that, hey, look at the contributions that they've made. I think we both will come to the same conclusion that we're just all human beings, really, and we all have something to contribute. But when you can only be tall by keeping someone on their knees, that's, what is that? Mm-hmm. That's, that's cowardice. That's nothing. And that's what America has been for the last 400 years. But I think with George Floyd, the most, who'd ever, it was just something that happened that, that there were bigger events that happened other than George Floyd, but that was the one that seems to have sparked this watershed moment that I hope continues. Because 
we are all the same race, really. And race is, is uh, it's been, it's just a social construct of human beings to control and enslave another group of human beings. So we're all just the same species. We're, we're all the same minus one-tenth of one percent genetically the same. So uh, this whole thing that just believing that you're better than someone, not because you actually are, but if you just make that as a common lie and common narrative and common conspiracy theory, call it that, just because of someone's melanin in their skin is insidious and evil, really. Absolutely, you need to see examples. And I was fortunate to have seen great examples in my parents. I was adopted, and I, as I said, and I met my biological family. And the and they were, it was a good experience. I met my biological father. He, he's deceased now, but I did get a chance to meet him. He had a lot of kids outside of wedlock, but I, I was one of them. I did have I met my biological mom, and she struggled. She's from the inner city, still lives in Cleveland. Had I been raised by her, it would have been a different life for me. Not saying I couldn't have excelled and, and, and achieved greatness. I use Isaiah Thomas as an example, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. He had an older brother that was people, the consensus was his older brother was better than he was. Why did Isaiah, the younger brother, become great and the older brother get eaten up by the streets of Chicago? Uh, there's a documentary uh, by Isaiah Thomas's mother called Mary Thomas, and they delve into that. So I'm not saying it couldn't have happened for me, too, but it would have been more difficult. But because I had role models around me, my mother and father, I was an, raised as an only child with them. I saw them achieve things, and they were just average people. My dad was a factory worker. Did not have an education other than high school, and same with my mom. But my dad worked in a factory, just worked hard every day. He worked seven days a week to make the overtime, so my whole life he was always working. And when he took a day off, man, it was a special deal. He took days off to watch me in the state tournament, so I knew it was a big deal when he was coming to watch me in the state finals. I saw him move our family from Cleveland. Right after Martin Luther King's assassination in 1968, I was 12 years old then. The streets of Cleveland was starting to, as most major cities in the United States, going through riots and just social unrest because of that in 1968. We moved to this all-white community in Chardon. And we didn't move there just because it was white. You know, we moved there because it was, it, it, my dad could have a farm, and that was his dream. And I can remember his friends and people saying to him, in Cleveland, because we lived in an all-black environment in Cleveland, they were saying, why do you want to go move in charge if you're all those white people? Why, why do you want to go out there? It was just, it was like, oh, they're, they're not going to accept you out there, and it's going to be hard, and blah, 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 and all the stuff you might imagine. And it was, heck, it was 1968. Things weren't great in any part of the United States, really. But the thing I could say is, Chardon accepted my family with open arms. There was, I was one of two black kids in the whole junior high school and one of maybe four kids in the whole high school. And that's where I became great in wrestling. I had a coach that embraced me and he's the one that took me to that camp where I got to meet Dan Gable. In fact, I went to the University of Wisconsin because one of the one of the families in Chardon, the Granthams, John Grantham, the uh, the father, he owned a business. He's very successful. In fact, the first cell phone I ever saw was in his car, his Mercedes, back in the back in 1973. So he had a private plane and a whole bed. And he's the reason I went to the University of Wisconsin. His own son went there too, 
he treated me like his own son. It was like I was like a sort of a son to this guy. He was very nice to our family. He flew my parents in his private plane to come visit me in college, the whole bit. I, I think people, if they can take the blinders off and just judge people for who they are and their contribution and just what they are as human beings, their souls, their their hard work, their ethic of just being fair. I think people saw that in the Kemp's living in Chardon. And in fact, I have a relationship with the former police chief of Chardon, Mr. Carl Henderson. In fact, I remember coming home sometimes and seeing the police car in my driveway and him and my dad just sitting having a cup of coffee, sitting on our, on our front steps, stuff like that. People respected my dad because of who he was as a man. It had nothing to do with the color of his skin, really. They accepted him into the community. And when he passed away, my mom was going to have a funeral in Mississippi, where they were from. But the community of Chardon them to have a wake there because they wanted to see my dad for the last time. So we had a wake at Chardon before we went to Mississippi for the funeral. So I got to see white and black people getting along, first starting with me as an individual firsthand, but seeing how my parents were treated there. And it could be done, but it can't be done pretending, pretending that racism doesn't exist and pretending that, that we don't have problems. That it's just it's not going to work that way. But what will work is people sitting down and talking to each other and understanding each other and hearing each other. The worst thing that can happen is you hear someone say something that, that is bothering them or something that has happened to them, and to have someone not listen and someone just say, no, that's not how it is. Someone trying to tell you what you're feeling. That doesn't work in any relationship. It doesn't work in trying to raise children doesn't work in a marriage, it doesn't work in a business, and certainly doesn't work in race relations. What does work is understanding each other and trying to have empathy and, and understanding what someone might be going through. And so I guess that's my, the way I would frame that. I love you mentioned history. I, I didn't know about the Greenwood Massacre until last year, and I had to learn about it myself and learn about black excellence where in a pocket where it seemed like it would be an impossible time for black excellence to exist. And in fact, we just finished releasing our special We Are Here, which is focused on black excellence and cybersecurity. But that highlighting, that that amplifying of black excellence and even excellence across races, you talk about us being humans, human beings, humanity. And that's what we try to do with our podcast we try to highlight the stories and the, the passions, the experiences of, of all people. But I would love for you to speak right now to that person that's listening that wants to be great. They know they want to be great. They, they want to prove it to themselves. They want to prove it to the world that they have greatness with, within them. What piece of advice would you give to that person so they can start operating as a champion today? First thing is the mentors that are around you. And maybe that's too strong a word because when you're young, you don't really know what a mentor is. But what I actually feel changed me was focusing on someone that, that had actually accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. Now, that doesn't mean you, you can't learn something from someone that, that hasn't achieved greatness. That's not what I mean. What I mean is if you have the opportunity to be around someone that is achieving greatness or doing something that you want to do as well, and if they're not like physically in your presence, you can always read books about some of these people. With the advent of the social media and the internet and everything that you have information at your fingertips, uh, you can physically go to places that these people are at. You can go to seminars. You can go to workshops. Like I went to a wrestling camp 
that Dan Gable was at. So I didn't personally know him, but I could observe him and pick up things. When I talk to wrestlers and even people in business or even people uh, saying to me that they want to achieve certain things, uh, my first question to them is, well, what are you doing now to move you closer to that goal? And it's amazing some of the responses I get from people. And the biggest response I get is they're not doing very much. It's only a thought. It's only words. It's only something that, that they think a little bit. That okay, I think I want to be good. Um, thinking about doing something and actually doing something, they give you entirely different results. And I tell people that. I think you have to physically start doing something to move you closer to that goal. And the things that you have to start doing are the things that other people have done that got them to their goals. And if those goals are similar to the goals that you want, you have to do some of those things. And what I always find is people cherry pick the things that they like out of the things. Example, I've had wrestlers that have asked me that question. Coach Kim, what do I have to do to be a champion? I'm really excited. I want to do this. So they're really eager and enthusiastic at first until I start laying everything out that, they're, that I think they should be doing. And those are the things that I did. And after a period of time, I'll see the enthusiasm wearing off and I'll see them not doing those things. And they, the ones that are being honest, will honestly tell me, Coach, I really don't, I guess I don't want it that bad. And they're okay with that. And, and I'm okay with that too, a person being that honest with themselves. What I find in life is we are honest really in our deep, in our heart. The, we can lie to the world, but we can't really lie to ourselves, even though we try. Because the results are always manifest in reality. And just because you don't win a gold medal or you stand in the number one spot doesn't mean that you didn't reach your goals really. I think some of the greatest motivations I've had are people that never won championships because I saw how hard they worked and how they did it. Unconditional love. It, their, their love for that thing wasn't predicated on them having success. They got up every day just like I, I did. They put in the work just like I did. And I thought to myself, man, if I've, got, if I've been blessed with a little more athletic ability, a little more of the things that are needed to win this full medal, man, if I don't, if I don't achieve that, then – all it, it all falls on me. If I don't do what I'm supposed to do, then why should I deserve to win too? A lot of it is just going for something with all your heart. Of course you want the end result. Of course it, anybody would want that. But if you don't get that thing that you want, you still have to live anyway. Why not live going forward as if that goal was still fresh in your mind. And I'll use the Olympics as an example of the boycott. If anybody was going to be an Olympic champion in the history of the Olympic Games, it was going to be me. I was so focused on that. There was no one that was not going to be an Olympic champion other than me. I knew that I could do that. And for the two years prior, I was a world champion. I was ranked number one in the world going into the Olympic Games. And the only way that I would not be an Olympic champion was if they they boycotted the games really or something. That's how weird that was. I can remember joking with someone, a friend, so a close friend, someone that I could say this to. I would never say this publicly, but I was so focused and so confident that I could be an Olympic champion. I said to this person once after practice, the only, only way I'm not going to be an Olympic champion is if they cancel the games. 
and it, it wasn't a joke, but it was just something you might say kind of off, off the cuff without really thinking about it. And then the boycott happened. And so in my mind, when I hear people talk about Olympic champions, it just feels like there's a death in the family. It feels like, I just feel like a part of me died that I can never get back. It's such a weird feeling. I've been in settings at wrestling functions with some of our just wrestling functions with a lot of people, which included our Olympic champions and world champions, all that kind of stuff. And invariably, there'll be some photos taken and stuff like that. And I remember one of the athletes, one of the Olympic champions say, let's take a picture. I thought, I'm pretty good. I'm a world champion. He must mean me too. But then he clarified it. No, just us Olympic champions. <clears throat> and, I, and I stopped and I go, oh my gosh, I'm not Olympic champion. I sit back. And then I think when they realized what had happened, oh, Lee, come on, man, you can get the picture too. I said, no, that's okay. I'm cool. <laughs> I felt really, wow. That, that, that's the reality of this. this is, it didn't happen. And, but that's the reality of life, though. Sometimes things don't happen. So what does that mean? And I did this like a commercial, like a, like a one-minute commercial for the director of my movie. <clears throat> His name is Riley Hanlon. He called me one day and said, hey, I want to, with the boycott of the, or the postponement of the Tokyo Olympics, I think someone like you could provide some insight, maybe uh, provide some, some mentoring, maybe through your words. It could help people. And so it's called I'm Still Standing. And I think you could probably Google that if you're on YouTube. But I just did this. 30, this one minute video of and my direct the director of my movie Riley Hanlon put it together and it's really pretty cool and that's all he, he asked me Lee what just what can you say about the Tokyo Olympics being postponed <clears throat> and he just left it open ended like that for me so I wrote a script and it ended up culminating in saying after 40 years after the boycott my boycott of the games all I can say is sometimes you don't get what you want. You go through trials, tribulations, hardships. You get knocked down, you get beat up, whatever. All kinds of stuff happens. You get divorced, you lose your business. 40 years is a long time. Maybe you don't go to the Olympic Games for some reason. Maybe you get hurt. But what I can say after 40 years, I'm still standing. And that's all I can think of is to say is I'm still standing. And that's all any of us can really say. If is at the end of life, are you still standing? Coach Kemp, that's incredible. I really hope people are listening to all these wise words. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to, to hop on the mics with us from the bottom of our, our hearts. Thank you so much. I want to be sure that I drop links for not only Wrestled Away, your documentary, your book, Winning Gold, and, and also your greatest season for the, the wrestlers out there. But are there other ways if people want to stay in touch with you and all the things that you have going on, what are the best ways that people can do that? I think just through my website, LeeKemp.com, or through any of the social media platforms, Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, Twitter, whatever. I'm on all those. And you can get to those links from my website at LeeKemp.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lee. We'll be sure to drop all of those in the show notes. Really recommend everyone to check them out and stay up to date with all the things that you're doing. And we will see everyone next time. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.